You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up, y'all? Hey, team. What's up? Hey. 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 Hey! So excited. So excited. Um, yeah, this is fun. We're in it with Father Abraham now. And did you guys sing Father Abraham? Like, was that a song that you knew growing up? Father Abraham. Come on. Don't let me hang in. Had many sons. Had many sons. Yeah, yeah. Come on. What are you doing, bro? You know the song. I actually don't know this song. I mean, I've heard it since I became a Christian. But when I hear songs like that, I wonder how so many kids stayed Christian. Through youth group. <laughs> well, they, they started really sprucing it up and they did like rock versions. Oh, rap man, versions. that would have gotten me. The rock version. Creative. If they would have yeah. done rap, then I definitely probably would have gotten converted through that. Yeah, yeah. Definitely, probably. <laughs> definitely, probably would have been converted through the rap remix of Father Abraham. Um, JT's hot take for the morning. And so, if you're an entrepreneurial, knowing faith listener and you think, man, what could win the next generation? JT is saying it could quite possibly be. I don't know about the next generation. It would have gotten me though. Okay. Mm. Fair enough. Everybody has a price. Yeah. Um, Apparently mine's pretty low. I guess today it would need to be an EBM, an electric dance music (laughs) version of Father Abraham. Um, Oh boy. We are off the races. Uh, Okay. So in Genesis 12, we meet a brand new character. And he's kind of a big deal, you might say. Uh, Father Abraham, that's who he is. And so it's incredibly important that we spend some time in Genesis 12 verses 1 through 9, which is that's kind of the focus for us today, because Abraham is not just a significant figure for the book of Genesis. He's a significant figure for the entire story of Scripture. And the New Testament allusions, of the New Testament quotes, the New Testament references to Abraham are plentiful. And it is very difficult to understand the Old Testament storyline apart from understanding the specifically Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We said in one of our episodes last season, an Old Testament scholar has said that Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is an answer to the problems of the world. That's an incredible That's quote. good. And it's important for us to try to discover why that is today. So let's just start here. Who is Abraham and where does he come from? Can we, well, can Kyle. We, can, can, we, can we read it? Or, well, well, I hope we're backing up. Well, yeah, you want to back up to what? Well, I'm just saying, you said he was introduced in chapter 12, and that ain't true, Kyle. Right, that's true. That's true. It's not true. Great. He's actually introduced to us at the end of chapter 11. <laughs> it, well, I mean, seriously, from a from a Bible literacy standpoint, it's important to pay attention. And Kyle knows this. I'm just trolling him on his own podcast. But um, it's important to pay attention to sort of the, the textual markers that are in the book. And so we've talked about the Toledote statements, um, about the these are the generations of statements. And we we covered the Tower of Babel at the end of last season, but that's not the end of chapter 11. The end of chapter 11 introduces us to the family line that's going to point to Abram. And it is a direct line from Shem, who was figured, you know, importantly into the prophecy that Noah spoke over his sons. Uh, he's going to be the faithful line and descended from Shem all the way through Terah uh, to Abram is what we find at the end of chapter 11. And we also are introduced to Sarai right off the bat um, with a little footnote that she was barren. So when we get to chapter 12, we already have a little bit of background information on who Abram is 
and where he came from. So the tension has been set for us that this is going to be a significant figure. And then additionally, the text is doing something that we see a lot of historical narratives in the Bible do. It's expanding and contracting. So it has expanded and contracted several times in chapters one through 11. And here it's going to contract down to this one family, whereas we've looked at all of the earth and people being spread abroad and all of that. Now for the rest of the book, we will be contracted down to this one family line. Yeah. So we're getting, we're getting, it's, there's this focus and the babble was kind of like this big, feels like, wow. Like, I mean, you're in, when you're in Genesis 11, particularly at the end mm-hmm. of the story in Babel, it just feels like everybody's scattered. And then we get this mm-hmm. magnifying glass mm-hmm. on this one guy, mm-hmm. Abraham. Table of Nations shrunk mm-hmm. all the way down to line of Abram. Yeah. And so we find out that Abram is from Ur, right? And Ur is in what would have been there uh, in their present day would have been Babylonia. So that's where he's at. He's way out there. And this call uh, to Abraham, uh, it begins with go. Like you, you're going to leave. So go from your country, right? So go from Ur. And it says to the land that I will show you. And I think it's important to pause here because we're a very mobile, our generation, our society, our culture is hypermobile, right? So when we think about going, leaving, departing, leaving where your family's from, leaving your family of origin, like all those kinds of things, that's a lot, that's, that's a lot, that feels more, maybe more natural to us, but it wasn't natural on this day to pick up all of your things, leave the place that you knew where you had land and family and relatives and say, I'm leaving this place. That was not normal. And I would imagine it was definitely not normal for people in Ur and in Babylonia to be hearing from a voice from God telling them, <laughs> you're going to leave. Hey, you Go. Right. I mean, just maybe let's just talk a little bit real quickly, because I think some people read this and like, yeah, of course, God told him to go. He would go. Incredible social cost here. Incredible mm-hmm. personal cost. Incredible risk that he's undertaking. He's pretty much going to go be a people-less stranger in lands he doesn't know which is a pretty dangerous place to be in the ancient Near East. Well, yeah, and I think you see a progression here. It says, go from, first it says your country, then it says your kindred, and then it says your father's house. So you can see it's like it's pushing further and further Mm -hmm. into the things that would have mattered most, the things that would have given the greatest sense of identity, the greatest sense of security. And we're seeing, again, a theme that was introduced in chapters 1 through 11, that God is a God who separates. And whereas we saw him separate light from dark, and sea from dry land and, you know, the waters from the waters, all of those those separations that we saw in chapters one through 11, now we're seeing a different kind of separation happening here where we're seeing the righteous being called out from among the unrighteous. Now, obviously at this point, Abram is still your run-of-the-mill pagan, but we're going to see him being transformed through the narrative into that first in the line that will um, bring about Messiah. So yeah, Kyle, we actually see separation from kindred and father's house as like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do when you grow up and, and, and leave your home. And it just wasn't that way. In fact, I'm actually trying to bring this back a little old school Kids, are you listening to the podcast? Welcome, children. <laughs> yeah, I'm all about let's but let's buy a compound and all live together. It's not weird. It's biblical, right? <laughs> uh, I do think that in our in our culture in particular, we have lost sight of the significance of. It. Actually, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys have felt this. 
with uh, the pandemic of how much sense it would make to live in close physical proximity to that mm. network of extended family. I think it's oh, yeah. brought it back uh, into focus for many of us. Um, the distances feel more distant. And, and Abram would have felt all of that. He, 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 these were support systems that he relied on and he's yeah. being separated from them. Yeah, and, and these multi-generational family units, and keep in mind, Abraham is going to go start a people where these multi-generational family units will proliferate and be the norm, okay? That's the long tail on this story. But for him to leave his family and do this would have been incredibly unusual in this time and Mm -hmm. in this place. And it says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is another thing we have to focus in on because culturally, land for many of us does not hold the same cachet in value that it did at this time. JT, why is that? Like somebody might be listening to this and they're like, well, I don't have any allegiance to any plot of land and I don't feel like I have any dependence on any sort of land. And that would not be an incredible, why is this an incentive? This promise of the land that's factored in here and repeated all throughout the story of Abraham and the story of Israel. Why does that matter to them so much? Yeah, well, to answer the question, maybe from like a like a canonical or a theological perspective, ever since Genesis 3, humanity, whether they could articulate it or not, are living in exile. They're outside of the presence of God and they're outside of the place that God ordained for humanity to, to dwell and to cultivate and to extend God's glory to all of his creation. And we see that again in Genesis chapter 11 after Babylon. Not only is their language confused, but they are dispersed. They're sent mm-hmm. out and, they're, and they're, they're no longer together. And mm-hmm. so you already said, said this, that use this language, Kyle, of kind of a, 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 he's a, he's a place, he's a stranger without a land. He's an, you know, first Peter would call us exiles. And so Abram, whether he would say this with his words or not, or any human living in this time would have, or not deep down in their guts, they know they are not home. They, they know that there is a place that they belong and they're not presently there. And that's still true of us today. That's why Peter in first Peter calls us elect exiles. Right. And so Abram, in some sense, is this first elect, elect exile that is being called back home. And yeah. so when, when, he, when God comes to him, God is saying, come back home. And so if, if, if the way that we used to teach this in the training program is, is through the categories of what God is doing with the overarching kind of umbrella being God is re-Edenizing the world or he's bringing his kingdom back to the world. And a huge element of that is place. It's a, it's a home to be. And most importantly about this place, and it says it in the text here, God is in this place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's not just that it's a tract of land. It's not just that it's here, Abraham, here's this little few acres that you can have. Congratulations. It's I'm going to show you this land. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to mm-hmm. dwell with you. And so it's not just that place matters. It's that it's that, that place matters because God is present with his people there. And so what you're getting here is a little shadow, a little glimmer of humanity being invited back into Eden, back into the presence of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you get a picture too as uh, that, that this place matters because it's going to be not just the place where God's presence will dwell with his people, but it's intended to be the place where God's people um, display his purposes in the world, namely to be fruitful and multiply, cultivate and subdue. Because we don't get that word for word in the verses that follow, but you do get a very, like you essentially get those promises. I'm going to make of you a great nation. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bless you and make your name great. So 
so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless uh, bless you and him who dishonors you will curse in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. This isn't a word for word rephrasing of the cultural mandate, but the idea and the hope and the promise of the cultural mandate uh, is still there, which is I'm going to make of you a great people and you are going to be a blessing to the world around you. That's what I intend for you to do in this land that I'm taking you to, which again, like you said, JT, is uh, Abraham is an elect exile. His story does have some things to demonstrate for us as we live as elect exiles for how we are called to do that uh, in the world around us as well. We're strangers, we're sojourners, but we are people of a promised place, a promised presence, and are presently living out the purposes of God in the world. I think one thing that is important to, to even kind of maybe drift off you a little bit for a second there, Kyle, is is one of the things you see here in verse three. I'll just read it real quick. Or I guess you, you just mentioned a lot of the language. I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. I think sometimes in, in the, the little tradition that I live in and that I think the two of you would identify with too in kind of the reformed evangelical community is that election has become highly individualized and election yeah. is an individual thing. Abram mm-hmm. is an individual who is called and elected, but he's called for a purpose of blessing others. So one of the things that we see here in Genesis 12, specifically verse three, is that election never terminates on a single person. Election is meant to extend through and from that person to bless ultimately the nations. And so what you see here in Genesis 12, three is again in shadow form of what you're gonna see Jesus say in Matthew chapter 28 to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. I've chosen you so that you can go be fruitful and multiply among the nations and I will bless those people through you. Can you just, for those who may be new to the conversation, when you talk about election, give us just a really simple definition for what you mean. It's what we do every year, every four year. No, uh, no, 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 it's not. That's not what we're saying. We're saying God chose, God chose God. Mm-hmm. Like, it's important to realize here there are I don't know how many people were alive, hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. alive at this time. Mm-hmm. And God chose one family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He didn't choose all families. He chose mm-hmm. this family, but he did choose this family to bless all of those other families, all of those other, those other nations. Well, and I think, you know, to tie this more closely to when you say there are echoes of the cultural mandate here, the language of the creation narrative is all over these few verses. And mm-hmm. so we've seen in these, you had the, the initial Eden scene, and then we had another Eden scene with Noah, right, yeah. after the flood. Uh, and this is now sort of the third Eden scene that we're going to see. And, and all three of those accounts have the phrase, and God said, as their, their opening line. Here it's, now the Lord said to Abram. Uh, and then you hear this repetition of, I will, I will, I will, I will, which is uh, meant, I think, to make us remember the, and God said over and over again in the, in the creation account that's in Genesis 1. And then, of course, we'll see in verse 4, so Abram went, so went as the Lord had told him. So you can hear the, and God said, and it was so. Mm-hmm. So we are absolutely meant to be thinking, oh, Something that's happened before is now happening again in a, in a slightly different way. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 
10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. One of the things that is going to happen here with uh, with with Abraham is that we're going to see, and I'm, I'm for the sake of not this not being confusing, I'm just going to call this guy Abraham the whole time. Okay, I I, I don't want to be. I, I mean, if you guys, if the biblical literacy police want to tell me I should be calling him Abraham, <laughs> I'm gonna. Is I'm that gonna, a shot at me? I'm going I'm <laughs> to shake off the shackles and call him Abraham the whole time because going back and forth between Abraham and Abraham, it's just too much of a headache. But so. What we're going to find out with Abraham is that his journey as an elect exile is not unimpeachable. It's not like... That's the understatement of the season. <laughs> I mean, like, I think it's important because I, when we look back on the stories, and I think Abraham gets this treatment, Moses gets this treatment a lot. There can sometimes be a very rosy view taken of Abraham, of Moses. David, usually in the Old Testament, if you're picking up like a big hero and you're going to slam him down real hard, <laughs> David's typically the guy that you, you bake your punching bag. But Abraham and Moses don't get the same kind of treatment, but they're flawed people. I mean, they like Abraham is a flawed character. He just is. He's got imperfections. He is not Jesus, but he is uh, the elect one who is uh, God is calling uh, into the land and that God is going to make a covenant with. Which makes him exactly like David. And, right. and that's what I think if we could get these earliest stories right, it would help us with the later stories. We mm-hmm. would stop looking for hero narratives and start looking for narratives that are saying, this is not the Christ, but he is coming. This is not the Christ, but he's coming. And mm-hmm. yet these people are chosen by God uh, to fulfill a particular purpose in the redemption narrative. I don't think we can move past these verses without, like, we've emphasized the blessing aspect of the call, but that's not everything that's here, Mm -hmm. right? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, when we hear something like this, a lot of times we're uncomfortable with it. But if you read the Pentateuch, I mean, especially when you get into Deuteronomy, you're going to find about blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Uh, and uh, and so you're going to find curse language throughout the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament as well, usually referencing back to something in the Old Testament. But what do we think this means? So when God tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you and those who, I will bless those who bless you, but him who dishonors you, I'm going to curse. Like, how are we supposed to read that? 
Well, I think we read it and we're like, he's on team Abraham. Like God is on Abraham's team. And really what's being said is the opposite. It's that Abraham is going to be on God's team uh, and that God God is going to make a way for his purposes to be accomplished. And I think we can lose sight of that and be like, oh, that's adorable that he he's just really rooting for Abraham. And, um, and so again, like if you look back, I just have to, I was listening to actually a Bible project podcast where they were discussing Adam and Eve and uh, Tim Mackey, who's now, you know, my favorite homeboy as a result of saying this was like, God does not curse the man and the woman. That's not a curse. And I was thinking back to our conversations around that too, but I think it's an important thing for us to notice because here, when we start talking about blessing and curse again, he is going to bless those whom he has set his blessing on. Like he, why? Not because they are worthy of blessing. Like you could argue that Adam and Eve deserved to be cursed in that moment. But instead, what does he do? He says, I'm going to bless those through whom I intend to accomplish my purposes. And those who thwart me, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so he opposes the proud because the proud oppose him. And that's what we're seeing here. And he's, and God is consistent on this. Like we're going to yes. see it almost immediately in the story of Abraham. Uh, and it's not even always a result of somebody else trying to do something malicious to Abraham. Sometimes Abraham just does something, he does something wrong. And the people that like receive the wrong deed, God curses them. Mm-hmm. Which is like, you know, but I do think it, it does go to your point, Jen, of making sure that like God's not up there with a foam finger that says Abraham on it, right? You know, <laughs> God is not Abraham's biggest fan. Uh, God, what God has done is God has blessed his people and he has said, you're going to be my representatives. So to dishonor Abraham and dishonor Abraham's people is to dishonor God. It's that kind of representation. And Abraham is a mediator in that capacity. And because of that, that is, you know, it, it's it's almost similar in principle. Uh, not, I'm not saying it's a one for one. And maybe the similarity is stretched here. But it's that idea of those who would deny Christ, right, in his earthly ministry are not going to receive the welcome of the Father. Mm-hmm. Like, why? Because the, the son of God, Jesus, is the covenant mediator of the new covenant. He is the representative of God. At this time, I'm not saying Abraham did all that Jesus did or is a one-for-one Old Testament remake of Jesus. I'm just saying Abraham is God's chosen man at this time. He is the one who God is exerting his purposes through him and his family in the world to dishonor Abraham and his family or to threaten Abraham and his family is to come against Yahweh. It's That's not just right. to come it's not just to come against a good guy that God believes in. It's to oppose Yahweh's purposes in the world. And this is the theme. This is a seed plot moment because we're talking about you know, what we've already seen in chapters one through 11, the righteous line versus the unrighteous line. Um, You'll see it transmute into Egypt against Israel. Then you'll see it, it's all Babylon against Jerusalem. It's going to be all the way through, all the way through to Revelation where you see um, those final images of Babylon versus Jerusalem and the outcome of that conflict. And so um, here we're hearing a promise that um, the battle is won. So Abraham, when he gets this call, I would imagine he's a young man and he strikes out on his own, right? That's how the story goes, JT? No, he's taking like, uh, he's got like a whole posse that's going to go with him. And like he he picks up and goes and it's and it's his whole family. And, and one thing that I think I was going to, just to riff off you were just, what you were just talking about, Kyle, verse seven, chapter 12, verse seven, the Lord appeared to Abraham 
and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we can't lose sight of here is it's it's not just that, that God is promising to bless Abram, but the blessing that he's going to give Abram is a family. He's going to bless him with people. And so I don't know if you want to get into this, Kyle or, or Jen, because I don't want to throw a wrench into the rest of the conversation, but this is a huge question this verse in the history of interpretation of who is Abraham's offspring? Because mm-hmm. who, who, like it gets, it can get, again, Kyle's smiling at me. It can get a little wild because who is Abraham's family today? And if you bless Abraham's family, do you receive blessing? And if you don't, do you receive curses? <laughs> I mean, do, I'm shaking you, what, over here because I, I want to talk about it, but I feel like is this the right time? Is this the right time for us to hit it? You think? I, I don't know. I don't know. But like, this is the verse. It is. It is the verse. He's gonna. He's gonna repeat the offspring promise in 15. He's gonna hit it in 22 as well. I think it comes up in 17. So maybe we just tease um, it out a little bit here. We don't have to like go in depth. Yeah. But well, let's say it like this: there are a variety of viewpoints. Yeah. On on offspring here and what and who that's told. So just for, just for the folks that are in the conversation with us, if you're looking at Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 9, and then looking at Genesis 15 and 17, and then really looking forward at God's covenantal promises through scripture, I want to I want to give you four categories. We've already talked about three of them. God's presence. If, if we're putting this under the, the category of re-Edenizing or bringing mm-hmm. the kingdom of God back to this world, the first is the presence of God. Humanity was meant to dwell in God's presence. That's our highest good and our highest joy. It's also a place. We've already mentioned that, that, that Abram is, giving, is being given a place for his family to dwell in God's presence. Kyle, you talked about purpose in verse three, that his, his purpose is to moving back to the cultural mandate in Genesis chapter one or moving forward to Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, the purpose of Abram and his family is going to be be selected in order to be a, a city set upon a hill, a, a light to the nations, a blessing to all people. So you've got presence, place, and purpose. But then here in verse seven, you also have person or people that there's going to be a, a person or people who are going to be given to Abram's family that are that are part of this promise. And the thing that's wild about this promise is Abram and Sarah uh, or Abraham and Sarah are old. Like they Mm -hmm. shouldn't have a person. They shouldn't have offspring. So as we're going to see in the narrative over the next few chapters is there, there shouldn't have been a a promised offspring. Her womb should have been empty and void. And it was up until this point in her life. And so they're waiting for this offspring to come. But the question is, and one of the main questions through the rest of the story of scripture is, who is this promised seed? Who is this promised offspring that God is going to bless the nations through? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we can talk, and we've we've talked about it in this way before. So if we're talking about the chosen seed, we can talk about short-term and or near-term. Sometimes we'll say near-term and far-term or near-future and far-future fulfillment. And the near-future fulfillment of this story, Isaac, is the promised offspring. Mm-hmm. In the far future fulfillment, it's Jesus the Christ, right. the Son of God. So those are not inconsistent things to say. No. Um, Abraham, when Abraham is going, I don't have a son yet. He's expressing something that he believes God has promised him. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's a fair interpretation for Abraham to reach, given the promise of God, I'm going to give you offspring. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what this meant, is that there was going to be a son who would come, who could lead Abraham's family and all that would come from Abraham's family, um, who could secure their place in the land, who could continue to carry forward the story of God and his purposes. But that's not really in dispute. Like, 
a Isaac and then Christ, the dispute mm-hmm. is in the intermediate term. Is it Israel? Yeah. Right. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know, for sure. And I, and I just want to, I know you said person and people. So when we talk about offspring, I think it's, I think it's fine to say, yeah, okay, it's Isaac first and then it's Jesus. That, uh, you're right, it's clear. Oh, it's but ultimately Jesus. Right, yes. There's ultimately. a lot of offspring in between. Yeah, sure. But Paul in Galatians chapter two makes the point that it's not offsprings. It's singular. It's offspring. Yeah. Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So yeah. what do we do with that, JT? Well, I mean, it's a question. So like, there's two, there's at least, there's more than two sides to this debate, as there is to any. It's more nuanced than, than anybody would like for it to be. But there's two hit, kind of uh, historical positions, one being covenantalism and the other being a, a form of dispensationalism that would either see Israel as, conti- like the nation state Israel, as continuing mm-hmm. to have ongoing purposes as God's family, Abraham's family today. And so those who bless Israel will receive blessing. Those who curse Israel will receive curses because this is the promised offspring. And that offspring, where should they be? Well, they should be in the land that God promised to Abraham. And this is one of the reasons why we have geopolitical disputes today mm-hmm. uh, over, over well, where should, where should the American embassy be? Should it be in mm-hmm. Jerusalem or should it be uh, in Tel Aviv? Or, you know, and, and, and then there's another, the covenantal position would say, no, 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 the people of Israel, and there's, there can be some extreme versions of this called like replacement theology, uh, where the church has replaced Israel as God's people. But then there can also just be the church has fulfilled or been grafted into the people of God, which is more of a, a traditional covenantal approach. So what would be some, if people wanted to look into this more, what would be some search terms they could look for? Like would Christian Zionism be one they could look at or... Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's gonna pull up some stuff. Don't that's Google that. Okay, that one's gonna get you. You're gonna go. You're gonna go to some places on that one. Um, so I think <laughs> if you're looking for if you're looking for just good, credible, genuine actors in these conversations, Craig Blazing Israel, Craig Blazing Dispensationalism. He, he co-authored a book with Daryl Bach called Progressive Dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. It's probably the best book for a very contemporary statement of Israel's position in dispensational theology. Then you have a middling position, which is what Gentry and Wellam have tried to do with Kingdom Through Covenant, and they address mm-hmm. this a little bit there. Maybe not as directly as I would have liked. And then you have where where I'm at, which is Michael Horton's book, Introduction to Covenant Theology. M- my take, and I'll put my cards on the table, I've been very clear about this in the past, is that I see the church as the fulfillment of Israel, meaning that there are not any promises of God that are yet to be fulfilled to the ethnic people of Israel. So I distinguish between a physical Israel or an ethnic Israel and a spiritual Israel. I think that distinction holds through the Old Testament storyline, and I think it's magnified in the New Testament storyline. So they, those roads converge in Jesus and then the church is birthed at Pentecost and is the proper fulfillment of all that Israel was intended to be. Yeah. So that's where I'm at. Same girl, same. That's my reading too. But I also would say, I think I could spend more time reading the other arguments personally. Well, and if you are wanting to hear the other side, Romans 9 is where they would go. They would point to Romans 9, 10 and 11 mm-hmm. and say, Oh, so you're telling me God, uh, Kyle, I know you're not saying this, but Mm -hmm. oh, you're telling me God's word has failed? No, because God gave this promise to this family. And that's exactly what Paul says. Now, it's not as though God's word has failed because not all who are descended of Israel are Israel. 
so they would say that a more kind of covenantal position would say it's almost, again, we're using some very simple terms, but they would say a covenantalist position is almost like a bait and switch. A promise is given to a family and then given to a different family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm, not we'll get, the, I'm not saying that it's yeah. true. I'm, I'm saying <laughs> for sure. And we'll, and we'll get to talk about it more over the course of this season. I am yeah. sure of it. And to be clear, this is one of those moments where uh, Orthodox Christians disagree. This is n- n- not not a ton at stake here in terms of who's who's in and nothing at stake here in terms of who's in and who's out of orthodoxy. The the, fun, the the reason these conversations are fun, kind of the second tier, third tier triaged conversations is because it forces us to know our Bible better. Yeah. Yes. Like, and we and we don't we we have to ask questions that we think the text is asking, not that we want to ask, and it forces us to be in conversation with people and in community and yeah. and wrestling over the text and the, the, a good biblical theology and good systematic theology deals with every part of scripture, not just the select portions that we know or love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I'll say this: one things, one of the things that I've come to realize about this particular conversation, covenantal and, and, and dispensational theology, and that I've said before, is that um, they real we really need both of them to remain in conversation with one another. Because I really believe that dispensationalism, uh, its strength is in biblical history mm-hmm. and in the biblical text, and it's kind of a history before it's a theology. And I feel like covenantal theology is really a theology before it's a history. So so I'm almost never shocked when I can find somebody who is a covenantal theologian. Let me tell you something. The dispensationalists, by and large, they know their Bibles better. They know okay? their Bibles very well. They know their Bibles very mm-hmm. well. They know the places. They know the dates. They know when the covenants <laughs> were cut. They know, I mean, truly, they do. And I think that they're very strong historically. And anytime I am in conversation with a dispensationalist and we're kind of wrestling over a passage, I walk away feeling like, man, there are some real, it's a stress test for my viewpoint. Uh, And it really does push me back into the word. So I think what you said, JT, is true of all those kind of intramural second and third tier conversations. But for biblical literacy, I think this one has unique value Mm -hmm. because of just, it is an all of the Bible kind of thing that you're talking about. So it forces you to go like, it's everywhere. It's not like we're just talking about Israel in, you know, Babylon and different views on how many authors there were on the book of Isaiah or something like that. It's a very one book, one dimensional kind of conversation. It'll push you further into Isaiah, but it may not necessarily push you further into every other book of the Bible. But this one, it's going top to bottom. You got to deal with with all of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we end this section uh, with Abraham saying he journeyed, still going toward the Negev. And we're going to pick up uh, next time talking about some family drama. And there is... Plenty to be had. There is lots of family drama. And so we're going to cover some stories dealing with that in the life of Abraham. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can join the conversation by finding us on social media. We're Knowing Faith Podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. If you want to get kind of more behind the scenes stuff, you can go to patreon.com slash knowingfaith and find out what we have going on over there. Some special stuff. All right. In our next episode, we'll explore some family drama with Father Abe. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace.